From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Glioma, a type of brain cancer, can be difficult to treat, as most of them are. Well, now there's new research that may lead to better outcomes and the personal story of a cancer scientist who changed the course of his research because of a teenage girl and her battle with brain cancer. We keep the tumor alive. Uh, We grow it in in culture dishes in in the lab. Um, So Shannon lives on in, in, in this way. The story of Dr. Richard Vile and Shannon O'Hara. Also on the program, the 4th of July is just a week away, and with it comes a surge in fireworks-related injuries. We'll have tips on how to stay safe. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Cancer Institute, over 23,000 new cases of brain cancer and central nervous system cancers were diagnosed in the U.S. last year. And of those cases, about 12% were in children and adolescents. Brain tumors, in fact, are the leading cause of death from solid tumors in children. About one-third of all brain tumors are gliomas. They get their name from the gluey supportive structures called glial cells that surround nerve cells and help them to function. Because of the location within the brain, gliomas are often difficult to treat. Well, our guest today is working on ways to attack gliomas by identifying tumor markers that characterize specific types of cancer. He is Dr. Robert Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is a pathologist and a specialist in laboratory genetics at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program. I'm Dr. Jenkins. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. First of all, how did you get interested in studying gliomas? I've been working on gliomas for almost 25 years. And I began when neurologist at the Mayo Clinic, David Kimmel, came into my office in the pathology department and said he wanted to work on gliomas. And that's when we began. What year was that? 1989. All right. So we'll fast forward to this year when you had, is it your first paper accepted to the New England Journal of Medicine? I have had several papers in okay. the Journal of Medicine, but I, this is the first one where I'm the principal okay. author. And a very prestigious journal, by the, the way. Yeah, I've I mean, heard of it's it. It's a big deal to get a paper. <laughs> I haven't had any in there, in case you, you don't even ask. <laughs> okay, you're, but you're a talk show host, Tom. So, <laughs> All right, well, tell us what was in the paper that was, um, was recognized by the New England Journal. We've been working on adult gliomas. You're going to be talking with uh, Richard Vile later about pediatric gliomas. Um, but one of the problems with adult gliomas is their pathologic diagnosis. So about half of adult gliomas are glioblastoma. The other half are other gliomas. Some of those do really well clinically, and others do very poorly. And the pathologic diagnosis is what puts patients into those clinical groups. Now, neuropathologists often disagree on the diagnosis, the pathologic diagnosis of the tumors. And it obviously is really important because it's predictive. It predicts what kind of therapy the patients get. Very important. But the pathologic diagnosis of these what we call lower-grade gliomas is extremely challenging. And when you say lower grade, you mean slower growing? Slower growing, Mm -hmm. generally slower, but not always. And is that determined uh, a surgery is done to take out a biopsy of the tumor, or how can you tell what type of, of glioma it is? In adults, nearly every person either gets a biopsy or resection or both. Very few tumors are not operated on, at least to get a biopsy to get that pathologic diagnosis. 
So the challenge has been you know, the pathologist is the pathology is difficult. This is necessary for their treatment. So how do we might how might we improve on that? So my lab has been working on the genetics of gliomas, looking at the DNA of gliomas for over 25 years, and my lab discovered one alteration uh, about 20 years ago. Two other labs discovered two more about five years ago, and we thought that if we just tested those three things, that we'd be able to put the gliomas into DNA categories that would be completely independent of the pathology. So and that turned out to be true. And that's why it got into the New England Journal of Medicine, because by just testing these three markers, we can determine, predict the age of onset, we can predict the survival, we can predict the acquired alterations that the tumors acquire as they evolve, and that is independent of the pathology and the grade. So, in fact, when you know these markers, we can actually put them into definable molecular entities that can be treated differently. In the past, they didn't have the ability to figure out the genome of that tumor? That's been going on now for, you know, the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. But now in the last two or three years, we now do genomics. Uh So now we can completely characterize a tumor. We actually know the parts lists of many tumors, okay, (laughs) why they are what they are. And so we were able to assemble from that parts list three alterations that we thought would be foundational, meaning early in the development of the tumor, way before it was diagnosed, and that might be able to put them into definable molecular entities, because tumors are really molecular entities. They just have a pathology, pathologic appearance. They're basically DNA that's gone awry. And so we thought that if we could put them into those groups, we might actually be able to predict things about the tumor, and we were able to predict survival, able to with with the groups we can actually make recommendations about what kind of therapy the patient should get um, and that's why it made the New England Journal of Medicine it actually from it, it, the, the tactical term is multivariable analysis when you cool. do statistical analysis of all the variables mm-hmm. the most important thing if you have a grade two or three glioma is your age and the molecular group you don't really need to know anything else just the DNA content and the patient's age. Hmm. So the two things from a patient standpoint that are truly important here are you can know or have a general idea how long you're going to live with this tumor, right? We can provide prognostic information about how how long a patient can expect to live. And we can also provide predictive information, meaning what kind of therapy they might be recommend their doctor might recommend they get yeah, incredible though i mean that you can help direct treatment based on the the pathology of the tumor which we haven't been able to do before you have for this particular type of tumor right we've been able to do it in the general categories of the pathologic histo- histologic and pathologic types but those were mixtures of different molecular kinds of tumors which behaved differently. So now we've sorted them into different, we've used a different sorting mechanism. This sorting mechanism is this DNA classification, and it sorts them into purer groups that have pure, you can make better predictions about how the patients will do. I can see how this is a really big deal and why it is in the New England Journal of Medicine. But I want to, because I'm the layperson here, Mm -hmm. for the patients who are listening, what I am hearing uh, is, oh, great, you know a better answer to the question, how long have I got, Doc, Mm -hmm. if you get this diagnosis? What does the future then hold that could make things better for patients who are diagnosed with glioma? Well, the immediate thing that patients can do is they can encourage their physician 
to send their tumor for these tests. How do you go about doing that? Um, <laughs> well, we have the Mayo Medical Laboratories. Very good. And we can, they can be sent to the Mayo Clinic through the Mayo Medical Laboratories, and we will do these tests. In fact, we are rolling out two large tests uh, in, later this summer for this very purpose. Very good. And the so, more you look at, the better you'll get. And the more we do, the better we'll get. And the next thing they can do is they can have the, their physician take a look at the data and make some recommendations about potential therapy. You wanted to, at the end here, uh, recognize the people who worked with you because you said you wanted to bring them all along right. with you, and I said, no, I can only do one. So who else helped you with this so research? This was, this was a big effort at the Mayo Clinic. Um, it was my co-investigators are Dr. Dan Lachance, who's in the Department of Neurology, and Dr. Jeanette Alpaso, who's in Health Sciences Research and is a biostatistician. Jeanette is the first author on the paper. Um, this would not have been possible without a very long-term collaboration with a Dr. Margaret Wrench and her group, who's at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, and we both have uh, brain tumor spores. SPORE stands for Specialized Project of Research Excellence. There's not too many of them in the United States, <laughs> only five in brain tumors. And they have one and we have one. And this has been a very productive collaboration between our two groups. Dr. Jenkins is a pathologist and specialist in laboratory genetics at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Better treatment for gliomas thanks to you and your team. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from a Mayo Clinic cancer scientist who changed his research focus because of a young girl's cancer. We'll hear about how the cells that girl left behind are being used to fight the disease that took her life. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We've just gotten an update on the state of treatment for brain cancers and what the future may hold for possible cures. Now we turn to a more personal story about a young person who succumbed to brain cancer three years ago. Shannon O'Hara of Rochester, Minnesota, was just 13 years old when she died of an inoperable brain tumor. But thanks to brain cancer cells that Shannon left behind, one Mayo Clinic cancer researcher is working hard to find a better treatment for the kind of tumor that took Shannon's life. That researcher is Dr. Richard Vile, and he joins us now in the studio. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Vile. You're very welcome. Dr. Vile, nice to have you. Nice to be here, thank you. You know, it's such a wonderful story, and I, I have heard it before, but I can't hear it too many times. Let it tell, tell our audience how it was that you became involved with brain cancer research, and particularly uh, with Shannon's cells, Shannon's brain cancer cells. Sure. Well, I, I've been at Mayo Clinic for 16 years, and uh, up until 2012, my main interest was in a different type of cancer, cancer called melanoma. You know, that's a, a, an important cancer in and of itself. But uh, in January 2012, I attended Shannon's funeral, um, and Shannon, beautiful little girl, had played uh, tennis with my son, and, you know, we knew Jen, uh, her, her mum and dad, and so on. Not not really well, but... Um, Enough to bring you to her funeral. Absolutely. As were a lot of people in this community, yes. Absolutely. And so um, she changed your life in a way. She really did. I think, you know, um, she was obviously the same age as, as uh, my children, and attending that funeral... You know, makes you think, and you go home, and you you try to put yourself in the uh, appalling position of the parents, and that's just too painful even to to try to do. But it made me think about what what I knew about these other cancers, the res research that I'd been doing, and whether we could start to apply some of what we'd learnt relatively successfully in those other tumours to this uh, this particular type of brain cancer, which affects young children. 
uh, and is almost universally fatal. What kind of tumor did she have? She had something called DIPG, which is a, a tumor which grows in the brainstem, uh, clearly a critical part of, of the body. It's difficult to access uh, and it's difficult to treat with uh, chemotherapies and so on. And because of its location and its size, it was impossible to remove it surgically. So the other treatments that she received that unfortunately were not as effective as they might have been, but they aren't in most of these kids, uh, both chemotherapy and, and radiation, but actually, as I recall, lived only nine months from the time of, of diagnosis uh, until her demise. Absolutely. It's, it's because it's so inaccessible to to surgery uh, and the drugs that we have at the moment really touch it very own, uh, only very uh, inconsequentially. Really. So when she passed on, her tumor, or at least part of her tumor, went to a research hospital. And take us from that point. What I'd been doing, or what we've been doing in our, in our lab, was looking at how the immune system can recognise cancers uh, in in patients, and we looked at. DIPG and the treatments for DIPG, and really very uh, little immune therapy had been tried. So immune therapy, getting the body's own immune system to attack the cancer. That's exactly right. So normally when when patients have a cancer, that cancer comes from your own cells, and so the immune system really is not designed to recognize uh, your own cells in any any form because it could be very toxic if it did. But we've, we've, and a lot of other people, have found ways that we can re-educate the immune system to start to see cancer cells as different and as foreign. And one of the potential uh, side effects of this is that that therapy should be rather more gentle than chemotherapy, radiotherapy. And so following the funeral, uh, I went and did a lot of reading, spoke to some neurosurgeons and uh, uh, looked into the whole area. And it was clear that this was an underdeveloped area. Uh, in terms of immunotherapy for brain cancers, and so we started to uh, develop some of the some of the approaches that we had been developing for other tumors, but for DIPG and pediatric brain tumors. So, as part of uh, Shannon's treatment, we've had sort of run out of, of options at, at most uh, tertiary care centers, and so she had gone to uh, another hospital where an experimental treatment was tried, and it wasn't all that effective, unfortunately. But that's where her cells were initially, and then. The, you asked uh, Jen and Dan, her parents, if, if yep. we could get some of the cells here? Yep, exactly. After uh, several months of sort of trying to work out what our strategy would be, we found out or we knew that Shannon shell, Shannon's cells existed, uh, and we asked if we could have an aliquot of them from St. Jude's, and they were sent. And that's now the the core of our approach to really trying to develop a novel treatment here. Is this right? Are you keeping the tumor alive so it continues to grow? Is that happening? Yeah, we keep the tumor alive. Uh, We grow it in in culture dishes in in the lab. Um, So Shannon lives on in, in... in this way. Is it a pretty fast growing tumor? I mean, is it easy to, to keep these cells alive and growing? Relatively so. We, we have worked out how to grow them, special medium and so on, and they grow, you know, we can keep millions of cells. Uh, we can freeze them down and we can grow them and, and as I say, freeze them down so that we can keep this going more or less perpetually. And what is your work involved so far? So what have you tried to do that involves the immune system and her cells? So the immune system sees proteins on the cell surface or of, of tumor cells. And our problem is for DIPG, we don't know which of those proteins the immune system really will see optimally. What Shannon's cells have provided us with is a source of all of the proteins 
which are expressed in this type of tumor. And so instead of trying to identify one or two or maybe three and use those in a vaccine type approach, we're using her cells as in, in the form of what we call a cDNA library. So this is all of the proteins expressed by her cells. We can now present to the immune system and we can present it in the context of a very powerful immune adjuvant. That's a virus which is very strongly immune stimulatory. So we've expressed all of her proteins in the context of this virus. And when we put that virus into a patient, the virus sends a very strong danger signal to the immune system and says, hey, this is something that you need to react against. And because the virus is now expressing all of her, all of her different proteins, we can see which of those proteins the immune system, when it's really fired up, can recognize and can start to react against. And once we have uh, been able to do that, once we can identify those proteins, then we can go back and, and stimulate the immune system very specifically against the cancer. So for other children that are in Shannon's position, if you've got 10 families with 10 kids that have got this DIPG brain tumor, would you need to figure out those proteins for each individual patient, or would it be probably the same? We believe that there'll be overlap of those two classes. I think there will be some proteins which are very specific to this type of tumor and which are expressed on all 10 patients' tumors. And then there will be additional proteins which are specific to Shannon's tumor or somebody else's tumor as well. And, and what you could potentially do in some uh, another child who had this cancer is develop a vaccine, maybe based on Shannon's cells or this particular patient's cells, produce a vaccine that would fire up the patient's immune system go, to go to kill the tumor. That's exactly right, yeah. To break it down even further, like you said, sh- that there is um, Shannon lives on in this case, and you have a team of people. How many people are working on Shannon's vaccine? So we have uh, a team of six people in the lab who are working on on this brain tumor and uh, trying to develop this sort of vaccine approach. It's it's an amazing story just from one girl's life that <clears throat> that has changed possibly the course of what you are going to study and what these other six people are doing every day. No, certainly it has. I, I you know I wouldn't have got into this disease had I not been to that funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a great story, and we wish you all the success for sure. And keep us Thank posted. You. Yeah, no, we want to know your when you've got it. Invite me back, and happy to talk about it anytime. <laughs> all right, the patient is 13-year-old Shannon O'Hara, who died of brain cancer in 2012. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Bile and his ongoing research using Shannon cells. Thanks, Dr. Bile. Thank you very much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a rotator cuff tear can keep you from enjoying everything from your favorite sport to doing basic household tasks. We'll talk with a surgeon about this common shoulder injury and how it's repaired. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline, Trans Fats. The growing consensus is they are bad for our health. But what's the skinny on these fats? Why are they bad for us? Partially hydrogenated oils are thought to increase the bad cholesterol in our system, and that's the LDL. It's also thought that it might lower our good cholesterol, our HDL. Taking partially hydrogenated oils out of our food supply may significantly improve our cardiac health. Mayo Clinic nurse practitioner Catherine Jaratsky says to check the nutrition labels on your food. Things to avoid are trans fats, saturated fats, and hydrogenated oils. It's better to choose fats that are unsaturated. 
And unsaturated fats or mostly unsaturated fat products are those that are oils or liquid at room temperature. You can also find good fats in avocados and nuts and seeds as well. Cutting out bad fats and eating more good fats, important ways to help improve your health. Let's talk about the relationship between sleep and being overweight. It seems that people who are overweight or obese tend to have sleep problems. Fat in and of itself is not always bad. It's where the fat is located that is the problem. In a new study, Mayo Clinic sleep expert Dr. Varen Somers and his team found that people with pot bellies are at risk of having a poor quality of sleep. The type of fat that causes pot bellies is inside the abdomen. It's called visceral fat. That's the dangerous fat. Produces all kinds of chemicals that damage the heart, damage the blood vessels, etc. Now that they know people with visceral fat tend to have sleep problems, Dr. Somers says the questions become: Does the visceral fat cause sleep issues, or does bad sleep make you fat? That's the next step for his research team. And that's a look at headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, you may have to give up golf because of it. Oh, say it isn't so. <laughs> or maybe tennis. Uh, or maybe just being able to paint the living room ceiling. Oof. That, that's woman's work anyway. Oh, it? The ceiling. You, the I man am. does the walls, the woman does the ceiling. <laughs> a rotator cuff tear can be a painful shoulder injury that can force you to change the way you get things done around the house and on the job. Here to talk about rotator cuff injuries, what they are and how they are treated is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. John Sperling. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sperling. Good to have you back. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, first of all, um, let's talk about the term a rotator cuff because a lot of people will say, rotor cuff or uh, it, it's like, sort of like uh, prostate. Everybody calls it the prostrate. But <laughs> That's right. It, it's not the rotor cuff. It's the rotator cuff, right? Correct, Tom. The and what is cuff. that? The rotator cuff is composed of four muscles and tendons that help stabilize the shoulder joint, but also allow you to give you the strength that you need to be able to raise your arm in the air. And paint the ceiling. And paint the ceiling. <laughs> oh, you got brother. it, Tom. That's right. So what, what is the trouble that people have with their rotator cuff? It really is an incredibly common problem that we see with rotator cuff disease, particularly as some people get older in life. We see some acute injuries, meaning some younger people may have a specific episode where they fall or have an accident that tear their rotator cuff. But as we all age, our rotator cuffs become thinner and weaker, and rotator cuff disease therefore increases dramatically as we all get older. So these those tendons sort of degenerate over time, and these are the tendons that come from the shoulder blade attached to the upper end of the arm bone and allow you to move your shoulder, basically. That's, that's exactly right, Tom. And as we all get older, there's some partial tearing, and sometimes that goes on to full thickness tearing. It's like getting... Uh, losing gray, losing your hair, getting gray hair, or both as we all get older. I just have to say, uh, you've said now uh, rotator cuff disease two times. I would have thought that it's a rotator cuff injury. Am I just parsing words here, or is why do you say it's a rotator cuff disease? You're exactly right. It's a, it's a full spectrum from having inflammation in your rotator cuff when your rotator cuff gets angry through to a partial tear and then a complete tear. So there's a full spectrum of disease that we see in that regard. Uh, in, in the amount of pain associated with them varies also. But in terms of the rotator cuff itself, there's a number of different diseases we can see mm -hmm. in regard to that. If you tear your rotator cuff, what happens? If you tear your rotator cuff, what most people notice, the primary thing they notice is pain. 
and pain at night can be very disabling. Pain at night, pain with activity, reaching into the back seat of a car, doing overhead activities that you described, Tom. People notice a lot of pain on the outside part of their arm. That's usually associated with the rotator cuff tear in that regard. And that can be sudden, someone slipping on the ice in the wintertime, or it can be something that can develop over time, gradually develop uh, with activities. And as that tendon gets weaker, it's more likely to occur as you get older. Exactly. How do you determine that you have a tear versus just inflamed? That's right. So it's really determined by physical exams. So when we see people with rotator cuff uh, problems, it's the examination looking for a lack of motion overhead or weakness. And then it progresses on to getting imaging studies, MRI. There's ultrasound has really changed our practice dramatically in our ability to take a look at the rotator cuff. So if people have continued pain, if they, if they fail non-operative measures, then we get those studies to try to determine how badly uh, they've injured their rotator cuff. And what are some of the studies? What do they do? So we usually start out with plain x-rays. That's the first step and uh, an examination. And if we have a high degree of suspicion we're concerned about if someone's torn their rotator cuff, then we make a decision to get an MRI or perhaps an ultrasound to take a look to see if the tendon itself is torn. And just because you tear it doesn't mean you have to repair it. That's exactly right, Tom. And, and we try simple non-operative things at first. So when we see people who have symptoms of rotator cuff disease or problems, we try medication, we can try injections, physical therapy. Only when people have tried those things and failed, then typically do we advance on and to get MRI and ultrasound in that regard. And why is that? Why don't you fix them all? Because they're so common. They're so common, and thankfully, most people respond to non-operative ways to treat that. In our practice, the ability to do ultrasound-guided injections or to have people who do that has made a huge difference. And that, that allows you to put the needle in the exact correct location to inject uh, the shoulder region. That's changed our practices. So you, uh, in the end, if you don't have a repaired, you may have a little weakness in your shoulder. There may be a few things that you can't do as well as you did before, but you can live with it. For many people, they can. And then the people who can't, those are the people we think about surgery. Also, the other group we think about surgery are, are people who are young, uh, 50 and younger who have a very specific event and they tear their rotator cuff and they come in with weakness. We've learned over time if you have an acute tear, meaning that you were normal one day and then some specific event happened, those are people that we should think about fixing sooner rather than later. Because that tendon will retract with time and make it more difficult to fix later, correct? Exactly, and, and the tendon actually turns to fat over time. So the tendon itself can turn to fat and make it much more difficult to repair in the future. If the tendon is un unattached, it becomes fatty instead of a tendon? Yeah, it's very interesting. So once the tendon detaches from the bone completely, the tendon actually undergoes uh, changes. And one mm -hmm. of them, the tendon essentially is replaced by fat hmm. and can be more difficult to fix over time. So if you do the surgical repair, are you replacing the tendon? Is that what you're doing? We're sewing down the tendon, and that's really changed a lot. Many people have heard the horror stories of going through big, open rotator cuff surgery and then afterwards having their arm in a sling with a big pillow. Those days, thankfully, are, are pretty much gone. Many times we're able to do it with a scope to make three or four little incisions around the shoulder region or perhaps one smaller incision on top of the shoulder and sew down the rotator cuff. And many times we can do that as an outpatient now And well. you could do that through the, the little telescope. You can actually sew the tendon back. It's been a huge advance, and also it's really helped patients in regard to pain after surgery. There have been a number of advances our anesthesia colleagues have made also 
to help the process itself be more comfortable for patients. Okay, so go back to the question that Dr. Shives asked earlier. If you don't have to re- repair the tear, then that doesn't seem like that makes sense because if you don't repair it, then it'll become fatty, and then if you eventually do have to repair it, it's not there. That's when you completely replace it? It's very interesting. That's one of the mysteries we don't understand of rotator cuff surgery, how some people can tolerate having rotator cuff tears very well, and there are other people, despite trying non-operative things, medication, injection, have continued pain, and those are the patients we operate on. So thankfully in the shoulder, that pain really is the driver on things. When people have failed non-operative things, then we operate on them for that. But it's amazing the range of how different people can tolerate different problems. So people's pain threshold plays into this. It does, and it varies. And we see some people come in with large rotator cuff tears that can raise their arm, have minimal symptoms. Then we have other patients that come in with large tears, can't raise their arm at all. Hmm. So again, it's one of the mysteries that we don't understand why some people can function well with a rotator cuff tear and others can't. Is the rehab and recovery after a rotator cuff repair surgery difficult? It's gotten much better, Tom. It used to be that we kept people in a sling for three months, wouldn't let them drive for three months, no activities. Now that's down for most of us down to six weeks. So it's come down a long way in that regard and trying to get people back to the activities that they enjoy and back to work. What about bone spurs? How does that, how do bone spurs play into rotator cuff problems? Very interesting. So uh, all of us as we get older uh, can develop a bone spur near the rotator cuff and that could pinch on the rotator cuff and uh, can cause inflammation of the rotator cuff. And that's one of the potential causes that some people believe actually ends up causing the tear, like a knife digging into the rotator cuff tendon itself. But the spurs themselves, again, we remove typically again when people have tried non-operative things such as injection and failed. All right, everything you wanted to know about rotator cuff surgery from an expert orthopedic surgeon, Dr. John Sperling. Dr. Sperling, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, fireworks are a leading cause of emergency room visits this time of year. We'll talk with a trauma surgeon about how you can avoid becoming a statistic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, the 4th of July is just around the corner, Tracy. And if you work in an emergency room, an ER doc, you know that that's when everybody starts to show up with injuries related to fireworks. According to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, about 240 people a day go to the ER with fireworks-related injuries in the month around the 4th of July. Here to talk about fireworks safety, I don't know if those two words go together, fireworks safety is Dr. Donald Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is a surgeon and trauma specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Jenkins. Well, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Jenkins, great to have you here. I know uh, that it's uh, July 4th coming up, probably a busy time of year for you in the ER. There is uh, absolutely no busier time for us in the ER. Is that right? Busiest time of the year? Absolutely. Except for, uh, isn't it around Christmas time, uh, what is it, New Year's Eve when the heart attacks uh, hit and and (laughs) New Year's Eve and Christmas Eve, isn't that true? So so New Year's Eve, uh, uh, infamous for car crashes, Mm -hmm. uh, more so than probably anything else. But the the 4th of July weekend is a pretty tough one in the ER. It it is uh, very difficult. Uh, So many people are out celebrating uh, this country's independence and uh, just doing a lot of fun things that uh, are associated with that holiday. Well, let's start with fireworks, since that's what we started this list with. What what are the most common fireworks-related injuries? What happens? Well, this goes uh, by the dictum of common things happen 
commonly. <laughs> and so the most commonly purchased uh, fireworks, if you will, are firecrackers and uh, sparklers. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they represent almost 40% of the injuries that we see uh, in patients coming to the emergency department. Uh, they're not the deadly injuries, although they can cause significant burns to the hand and blindness. Uh, but uh, the deadly ones are the professional or homemade uh, mm-hmm. type of uh, type of fireworks. Sparklers. I thought they were safe, didn't? It, when yeah, that's what kids, you give yeah. the three-year-olds. Yeah. So sparkler. what happens? How do they get injured with sparklers? <laughs> uh, so those uh, those sparklers, you know, it's burning phosphorus. It's thousands of degrees uh, Fahrenheit uh, that they burn at. Uh, people uh, don't think about them as dangerous because you can buy them right. at the grocery store right? Right. at the checkout. Right. And and uh, it is what you give the littlest kids. Oh, you can have a sparkler. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely, and those are the kids that bear the brunt of the injury. Half of the injuries that we see occur in those under the age of 18. Are they getting burned, or what's happening? They, they, they get they get burned, uh, they get uh, facial injuries, and they get eye injuries. Oh, so that's nice. about 75% of those injuries occur to the hand, the face, and the eye. So most of the ones that occur in the eye, is it from a spark that comes off the sparkler, or do they, does it hit their eye? Or and, and I assume that most of the injury is reversible, or can you go blind from, from one of these? So most of these uh, are related to the sparks that come off, although they are metal rods, and it is nighttime and, and dark, and people have a tendency to just set these things down when they're done. Uh, the child who's just been playing with a sparkler wants to pick one up and mm-hmm. you know grab it by the wrong end, right. and that's where the uh, uh, that's where you get the um, burn from on mm-hmm. the hand. So, so the other thing that happens is that you can be impaled because it's a metal object, sure. uh, and it's it's one of those a gift that keeps on giving because if you don't keep account of these things, they end up in the yard. Next thing you know, you're out mowing and you have a flying you know spear, mm-hmm. uh, a metal spear coming at you, and so uh, uh, there are subsequent injuries that that can happen. Uh, but most of these things are just mistiming. Uh, you're going to light some firecrackers and throw them. Mm-hmm. And then they go off in your hand, and next thing you know, you're seeing an orthopedic hand surgeon uh, in the emergency department trying to put some fingers back together. Because they can be such strong fireworks, such powerful fireworks, that they actually blow a finger off? My mom uh, always told me that, but I didn't believe it. A- absolutely the case. <laughs> you when believe you- your mother? Well, she tried to scare us a lot. <laughs> well, she was right to do so. Uh, and, and M80 can take your whole hand off. Mm. Uh, and uh, then people do other things, like they uh, want to get some other additional spectacular effect, and so they'll do ill-advised things like take a whole bunch of uh, um, bottle rockets, for mm-hmm. instance, and try to link them together in some way. My brother was really good at it. <laughs> uh, and he's still alive? I, I had to yeah. throw him under the bus. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so those, those are the dangerous things to do. So that what, what, what people say is that if you're closely observant, uh, follow the instructions that are on the box. Imagine reading the instructions mm-hmm. uh, that you can enjoy the result of these things and have a very good time of, of doing it. There are some things that they advise, uh, but obviously supervision of children is number one. Is there a certain age or an average age of uh, injured people using fireworks that come into the ER? Uh, is it little kids or is it the big kids? We well, said what? Forty percent of them are less than eighteen. That's correct. And then in that age group, uh, it's pretty evenly split between those under the age of ten and those okay. between ten and eighteen. And then again, total of seventy-five percent of these people are under the age of thirty. So it's still that younger group having a good time on the holiday. Uh, I guess eventually uh, you wise up, <laughs> and as you get older, you don't do those kind of things, uh, and the uh, injury pattern tails off after that. 
You know, speaking of M80s, you know, I am convinced that that's why I can't hear very well today and why you have to turn the volume up on my uh, mm-hmm. headphones is we used to light those things off and throw them up in the air and our ears would ring and we thought that was pretty cool. You would, you probably thought I fought in the war and it was artillery fire that <laughs> knocked out my hearing, but, but actually it was M80s years ago. Well, it's, it's the equivalent. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that is a quarter stick of dynamite essentially and, uh, it is an explosive, uh, uh, e- event and again, mistiming is number one. You know, issue uh, as you can imagine, you're going to throw that, you're going to bring it back, mm-hmm. and it's going to be right by your ear as you're ready to throw. If it goes <laughs> off in your hand, what? You'll have- <laughs> <laughs> You'll have a hand injury and a hearing injury. And if you don't blow off your hand, you can grow up to be an orthopedic surgeon that listens to love, love headphones. Yeah, he does have all ten fingers. So he does. Uh, he does. Is there a reason why uh, just the run-of-the-mill person should not have professional-grade fireworks if people can get their hands on that kind of stuff? Is that of concern? Yep. Those uh, those those people that do this professionally are uh, trained experts in using explosives because that's what these are. Mm-hmm. They, it's a misnomer of fireworks. Uh, the the higher the grade of these uh, are, they are truly explosives. And if you're not an expert in explosives, it's it's why many states have laws against citizens being able to purchase those things. Sure. You have to be a pyrotechnician. Isn't that what they call it? That, is, right. that is correct. What are the other things that uh, you'll see people for in the emergency room? I, I remember once one of the doctors we spoke with said spinal injuries the 4th of July weekend is one of the worst weekends for spinal injuries. What other kinds of patients will you see? ATVs and motorcycles. Mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can uh, bet that uh, easily 60% of those injuries will be alcohol-related. Mm. Even with the fireworks, once you get mm-hmm. above that legal drinking age, uh, the reason that that group in the 20s to 30s are so represented there has to do with a combination of alcohol and uh, fireworks. Sure. Um, but uh, we have already seen uh, the uptick. Uh, we are seeing three to four motorcycle and or ATV crashes resulting in serious injury admission to the intensive care unit every day starting about two weeks ago. Is there a a message that you want to give to our listeners straight from the emergency room doctor when it comes to being safe on the 4th of July? You know, that's, that's, that's just it, is think twice. Don't mix alcohol and these otherwise fun events. Enjoy them. You'll be able to keep the memory if uh, if you're not intoxicated, and keep your fingers, eyes, and hearing uh, if you uh, practice safe firework fun. Yep. After a six-pack, you just uh, lose common sense. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. We've been talking about firework safety and safety on the 4th of July with Mayo Clinic surgeon and trauma specialist, Dr. Donald Jenkins. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Me. Good luck this uh, July 4th. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.